What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode was recorded before Russia invaded Ukraine. The interview with Bronco provides a lot of useful context on how we got here. Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. I'm Aaron Matek. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm well. Now, Katie, I have a content question. Yeah. About Useful ahead. Idiots. As you know, in the first episode of, of my run here at Useful Idiots, I disclose that I'm not just now a new temporary co-host, but I'm also a uh, paying subscriber at usefulidiots.substack.com, which makes me a huge fan of the original Useful Idiots team, Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi. And I'm wondering, taking off my co-host hat here, just as a, as a consumer, as a content consumer, I am pining for some Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi content. I'd love to see a reunion. Is there anything I can do to, to fill that need? You could go to, thank you for bringing this up. You could go to youtube.com slash the Katie Halper show and check out a very good episode that we did with none other than, wait for it, Matt Taibbi. It's wow, true. Aaron, I can't believe you asked what fortuitous <laughs> timing with this question. Yeah, uh, I you're saying to- right now, just as I am pining for some Katie yes. Halper, Matt Taibbi content, yeah. there is it's there, amazing. it's there, it's wow. amazing with not only Matt Taibbi, but why I have Matt Taibbi on and I have him talking with Katrina Vanden So I got two guests first, it's just me and Matt Taibbi, great chat, then it's me. Taibi and Katrina, and it's great because you get to watch Katrina and Taibi, who spent time in the so in the former Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union, uh, but also afterwards in Russia, uh, talk about Russia and Ukraine. And then, um, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you get to hear um, an extended interview I did with Katrina Vanden Heuvel, and that's at Patreon.com/slash The Katie Helper Show. And we have a great show for you today. We're so excited to be talking to Branko Marchetich. A uh, Jackman writer who's written some amazing pieces about not only the conflict and Russia Ukraine, but also the media's coverage of it and politicians kind of ginning up of of the of tensions. So very excited about that. Yes, Branko's done a lot of work on this topic. Wrote a great book all about Joe Biden. Oh yeah, yesterday's and man and has He's a lot of insight into. Yeah, has a lot of insight into how Ukraine factors into you know Joe Biden's political career, and there's a lot to talk about there. So I'm looking yeah. forward to hearing what Branko has to say. Yeah, very excited. If you want to hear an interesting discussion about, we're not going to get into it quite yet, but we will, and maybe a Substack only one. Vouch, Aaron got into a little thing with Vouch, so just a little teaser. You you can access that at Substack, usefulidiots.substack.com. And if you have no idea who Vosh is, you're lucky. But if you want to learn who Vosh is, you can tune in at Substack yeah. at our Substack. Yeah. And uh, should we just get to the four basic food groups? That's why we're here. Let's do it. All right, so I have Democrats suck, and we have to do like a lightning round because there's so I much know, democratic suckiness. For you this week, yeah. There's so much democratic suckiness to get in, so we got to just go through as much as we can. And the main thing is Ukraine. The Biden administration has been warning for weeks now that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. There's been a million different allegations. There's going to be a Russian coup where they install a pro-Russian leader. They're going to round people up and put them in camps. That's one of the most recent allegations. There's going to be false flags with videos oh, yeah, and, and dead so. bodies. Crisis and actors. Crisis actors, exactly. And now they're confronting with a mess that I think they have a major role in creating. So let's hear what 
our Vice President Kamala Harris has to say. I mean, listen, guys, we're talking about the potential for war in Europe. I mean, let's really take a moment to understand the significance of what we're talking about. It's been over 70 years. And through those 70 years, as I mentioned yesterday, there has been peace and security. We are talking about the real possibility of war in Europe. So our position is for us very clear, which is as a leader, which we have been bringing together the allies, working together around our collective and unified position, that we would all not just prefer, we desire, we believe. It is in the best interest of all that there is a diplomatic end to this moment. Putting aside that Kamala is warning about a threat of war that her administration, I think, has put a major part in fueling and pretending as if this is somehow some abstract thing that the U.S. has very little power over when really it's, I think, the key player here. Putting that aside, the historical revisionism, I don't know if you heard that, Katie. She goes, you know, Europe has been uh, at peace and, and instability for 70 years, forgetting a couple of things. First of all, Ireland, there was a major fight there for a long time with, with freedom fighters trying to try and have independence. So there was that whole thing. And then just looking on the U.S. role, the U.S. in the last 30 years has been involved in two interventions in the 1990s, most recently in Kosovo when U.S. intervention basically actually led to the creation of a breakaway state of Kosovo, which the U.S. was the first to recognize, which is especially ironic given that now the U.S. is condemning Putin for condemning these breakaway republics right. in Ukraine. So she just, she, her and her aides, because obviously this, these, these talking points are rehearsed, happen to forget uh, just some key history. Yeah, what's weird is that I get that these people like are very America, um, you know, U.S. centric, but you'd think that they'd remember just the ones that the U.S. intervened in, right? Just Kosovo, like maybe not yeah. Ireland, um, yeah. but the Kosovo thing, you'd think that they'd remember just because the U.S. did play a role in that. But maybe she's being modest. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who checks her talking points, but that's Ugh. pretty ridiculous. Team Kamala. Got to step Kamala. it up. Yeah, you really got to step it up. Send him to me or Aaron. We'll help you. Now, we don't have to think about how this conflict is impacting Europe. There's also the fact that this has consequences for average Americans. And there's an article in CBS News that talks about the consequences. It's called How the Ukraine Crisis is Already Hitting Americans' Wallets. Although many Americans may prefer that the U.S. stay out of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the brewing violence and political fallout are already hurting their wallets. Gasoline prices, which have hit eight-year highs, could surge even further if the hostilities escalate or if U.S. lawmakers pass another round of sanctions. The economic impact could also move beyond the gas pump, Wall Street analysts warn. Sanctions or export controls against Russia could make current semiconductor shortages even worse, while restrictions on wheat or metals could drive the fiercest bout of inflation in decades to climb even higher. So after the Biden administration basically gave up on Build Back Better, now they're deciding to hit average Americans' pocketbooks even more by jitting up this conflict with Russia and threatening these major sanctions, which will uh, which risk cutting off Russian energy supplies, which help power 
most or a large part of Europe. So raising energy prices, not just for Europeans, but also even for Americans as well. Part of the strategic brilliance of the Biden administration. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, it's what what's not to love. You love to see it. It's an intersectional approach to politics, economic, military. Luckily, though, there are voices in media who are willing to shoulder the burden. And let's go to one of them speaking this week on Meet the Press. But also the thing that you hear President Biden saying is Americans need to prepare, be, be prepared for if this comes to our shores right. and it comes to to our shores in the effect of higher gas prices. When we already are seeing an eight year high, we're already seeing inflation at 40 year highs. So the president is also trying to tell Americans if we have to get involved here, the cost of freedom may be in your wallets at the gas tank. So you hear that, Katie? If the U.S. has to continue its quest for a client state on Russia's borders and expanding NATO's to Russia's borders, that in Yamisha's rendering is the cost of freedom. It's freedom if we have a puppet in Ukraine and NATO on Russia's borders. And Americans will have to shoulder the burden by paying more for gas. That's just the cost of freedom. You know, it's a small price for freedom. Uh, It's a small price. I'll drive for freedom. I'll fill up my tank for freedom. And meanwhile, let's just turn quickly to some of the voices who are there to make sure that Americans know we're on the right side of freedom and make sure that anyone who questions the cost of freedom, like fueling a proxy war in Ukraine and having higher higher energy prices as a result. Literally fueling it, right? Literally literally fueling it. it. Yes, literally fueling it. Uh, There are some voices in in the Democratic Party to make sure to remind us if anybody questions the cost of freedom. They're there to remind us whose side these doubters are really on. So let's go to a tweet first from Matthew Dowd, architect of uh, George W. Bush's reelection campaign in 2004. Now, of course, like many other fellow neocons, he's a Democrat. And this is what he says. If you are blaming Biden today for what Putin is doing in Ukraine, please take down the American flag from your home or social media account and replace it with the Russian flag. It will help us all know where you clearly stand. Shit. Wait, I wish I had some time. I'm going to, I don't have time right now because we're filming. The American flag that I have up on my, you know, my wall uh, in front of my apartment building that I drape outside of my, you know, my window. I'm not going to have time to remove it until after we're done filming. So apologies. I mean, Katie, you have to remove this massive flag on your building. And then you have to swap it with a massive Russian flag. This is going to take all, this is going to take all day for you. It is. Yeah. And you're not, yeah, I got to have someone come over to help me do it. And yeah. if you can't help me do it, you know you're helping. In my case, Russians, it's just like I, I, I have like 50 different social media accounts. I have my alts. I have my sub alts, you know, so I'm going to have to go yeah. through all those and remove the American flag and replace it with the Russian. I know, one, that's but. so annoying. Also, I'm going to have to remove the, uh, you know, I have my, my, all my blazers and jackets and coats and winter coats. They all have little American oh, flag lapel yeah. pins. So I'm going to yeah. have to trade those for Russia pins. I just, I have a back tat. I have a back tat of the American flag. Oh, it's yeah, right, you're right. You know, so you're gonna have to right like, above the buttocks in, in that lower right. back area. Yeah, right, right. In the tramp stamp area, you know. Yeah, and then uh, right. And um, I'm gonna have to get it. I'm gonna have to get that uh, laser removed and then get the Russian flag tattooed over, over top of it. Right. Jeez. You may be able to work it out so that you don't have to get it removed and you can just add the Russia thing. I'm not mm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there are some similar colors. They're both There's red, white, and blue. Right. There's yeah. There is overlap. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can yeah. make it like an optical illusion, so somehow it looks like the Russian flag. But that's my best I don't bet. Know. 
there's that's probably your best bet there's that's a lot to do a lot to think about and i'm really glad that doubt is is like giving us a heads up about this because you could have gone through the rest of your life with that american flag tramp stamp right there i know <laughs> i know i know so that's democrats suck yeah well that is a lot of democrats sucking Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. For Republicans suck, uh, let's just go to this video uh, featuring wonderful Californian Republican uh, Madison Cawthorn. The Green New Deal is a disaster. It's not a climate plan. It's a socialist manifesto, a Trojan horse for communism in America. I am tired of watching the DC swamp and political insiders capitulate to socialism. This is why I've come up with a bold constitutional plan. It's called the new contract with America. We cannot build down. If we want change, real change, we have to come together and build America up. This is the world I envision. It's time to liberate the American people from government overreach that violates our freedom and robs us of our dignity. You come first. America comes first. The new contract with America is an America first vision that takes the power away from government bureaucracy it puts it back in the hands of the people. It restores our liberties and builds a plan to preserve our freedom for future generations. I choose freedom. America chooses freedom. So that, of course, is a throwback, um, a callback, if you will, to the contract with America that Newt Gingrich um, brought into being. But this is the new contract with America, and it outlines 10 overarching pillars for the GOP. Government spending, economy, government reform, health care, education, culture and family units, energy and environment, immigration, technical innovation and defense and veterans. And here are just some of the changes that the contract calls for. Slashing government spending by a third by 2031, enacting a balanced budget amendment, and abolishing the income tax and finding replacement flat tax or consumption tax by 2026. The contract also calls for abolishing the Department of Education, making English the official language of the United States, banning federal funding for critical race theory teachings, and enacting school choice on the federal level so federal dollars follow the students to their school of choice, including private religious schools. So, you know, the guy's got it all laid out. Sounds like a good contract. I'm glad that he's going after the communist Green New Deal. For people who are just listening and not watching, there's some um, hammer and sickles in there. Uh, the production value is pretty good. What do you think, Aaron? What do you think of the video? I mean, first of all, does anyone remember the contract for America? And do they remember how actually unpopular that was? Like Newt Gingrich, I remember him bragging about like how great this was, but I remember polls showing that no one liked actually whatever was in the contract yeah. for America, which I'm sure was just like, you know, lower taxes for the rich. Right. Yeah. Republicans stand for. Yes. So could, they couldn't come up with anything better than just I know, adding it's a really new. Pathetic. Yeah. Just adding a new. It's pathetic when Newt Gingrich is uh, your, your, your source for inspiration. 
Yeah. He's, I mean, the only inspiring thing about Newt Gingrich is when he did a great interview. He was interviewed by Ali G. That was great. I don't know if you saw that. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And just like marketing wise, I just, you know, look, Trump tried this in 2020 when he was painting Biden as a socialist. But yeah, it's just not going to fly because everyone knows whether you like the Democrats or not, that they're like elite coastal liberals right. who if only they were love billionaires, who right. serve billionaires, you know? Yeah. And so to try to pretend that they're all radical socialists who are going to bring in communism, it's just not going to fly. People don't, people aren't going to buy it. Well, but the problem is Republicans. Some people do, but it's a limited audience and I don't think they're convincing people. It's a, I think it's a limited pool that you're, yeah. obviously you're going to commit your diehard Republicans, but if you want to win right. an election, you need to win over more people. Right. Yeah. And the problem, see, the problem is like, like Republicans are in this bind where they serve billionaires to the same extent that Democrats do, in fact, even more really, uh, right. given that it was Republicans who pushed through Trump's tax heist, the largest upper transfer of wealth in US history. So Republicans can't really run, or at least most Republicans can't really run on this like fake populist platform. Right. So instead they have to pretend as if really they're fighting against the specter of communism for coming to the yeah. country. But the problem is it just doesn't work anymore. People, people yeah. don't buy it. Right. He's a big liar, by the way. Is he? Madison, yeah. He he lies about everything from saying the election was stolen to then saying the election wasn't stolen. He even lied about, um, you know, he, he for people who don't know uh, or didn't watch, he's in a wheelchair. And uh, he lied about the friend who fell asleep at the wheel, which, um, which is why he's in a wheelchair. He mm -hmm. suffered from some um, paralysis. But he said the friend left him to die in a, high, in a fiery hell. Uh, the friend actually pulled him out. Uh, you know, he said that he didn't get into the Naval Academy because of his accident. Actually, he was rejected before the accident happened. So uh, also been accused of sexual harassment. Seems like a pretty disgusting guy. Uh, multiple women said he did uh, terrible things and just kind of like sleazy things. And also uh, two, at least two RAs said that they warned people against going uh, going on dates with him. He would drive women, allegedly drive them to like faraway spots and ask them weird sexual questions. Tough spokesperson yeah. for a new contract then. Yeah, it's true. Tough right. sell. Yeah, tough yeah. sell, yeah. But hey, proper to the graphics to, to the graphics team. Yeah, the team. graphics team, yeah. They created a, a communist hellscape they pretty did, effectively, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I like their little like, then they had Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Like coming down on a, on a, on a house. Yeah, for people who haven't seen the video, which you should, but if people are just listening, it's, I think Aaron described it well. It's a communist hellscape. Terrible politics, great graphics. That's the Republican Party. All right. So for Isn't That Weird, this was an exciting week, everybody, because it was the kind of debut. It was a soft launch of Trump's brand new social media network called Truth Social. Katie, have you signed up for Truth Social yet? I haven't. Should I? I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we do this? Well, the problem is you can't. Uh, you can't. Um, and in fact, you slut idiots, we tried to sign up and it looks like we are what, Matt? We are number 422,001 on the true social waiting list. And counting quickly. We'll be there <laughs> soon. Yeah, apparently they, they couldn't get the launch going properly. So now there's a waiting list, which is kind of, you know, I'm sure we'll, add, we'll excite some people. They're on the waiting list for this exclusive new Trump social media platform. We're on the waiting well, list. Yeah, we got We're in the second it. day. Whenever we get in, we will keep people updated and I will start posting a lot on Truth Social. I'm going to get the truth out there. I do have to say it is tough to be a Republican 
in the social media era because there has been a bias against them. We have to acknowledge yeah. that. Sure, I mean, yeah. the best examples were before the election, Twitter, Facebook wouldn't allow anyone to share the articles about Hunter Biden's laptop right. claiming it might be Russian disinformation. That was yeah, straight you up know censorship. What, you, right. You might as well, if you did that, that was basically getting a, a Russian flag tramp stamp. Exactly. If you exactly, that, yeah. right. exactly right. And uh, Parler, which was a popular social network for conservatives, that was just straight up shut down without any respect for the Constitution, I think. I mean, no matter what yeah. you think about Parler, Parler, I know, was a cesspool for all kinds of awful stuff, but so is everything. So is Facebook right. and so is Twitter. I mean, either you believe in free speech or you don't. So Republicans are being forced to create all these new social networks, but it's just, it's hard when you're not big tech. You, right. you don't have the infrastructure to do it. And so that's why Trump's True Social had such a uh, had such a uh, unsuccessful launch. Yeah, he must be so angry. Although it's everything works, he can work everything to his advantage now. It just shows what a like how under attack he is. So that's probably useful. I'm sure this will help. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, every attack on him ultimately helps him in that sense, because he can say and he can like, it's like he's such a it, it helps his whole con because remember his whole thing in 2016 was to make America great again, to rescue the working class. He right. did nothing. He did absolutely nothing. All he did, his only major legislative achievement was passing a massive tax cut for the wealthy. But the fact that he's being censored, banned from Twitter, there was the whole investigation of him being a possible Russia agent. He can point to all yeah. these things and say, look, the you know, right. it's, it's their fault. I couldn't get my agenda done. Yeah, and exactly. people, people do find that persuasive among his base. Right. It's, and it's their fault that I can't get true social up and running. Yeah. Well, okay. That is a, that's an, isn't that weird? And isn't that terrible in some ways? And now i got another, isn't that terrible for you? Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Lots of times I have to go out of my way to find penis related content, but this one mm. just fell into my lap, so to speak. So reading from Reuters, unfortunately, the New York Post didn't cover this. They just had the Reuters piece in it, but I know if they had covered it, it would have been much more pun filled than this one, which is really, this was very disappointing prose, but just reading from Reuters, the men's 50-kilometer mass start race at the Beijing Games was shortened to 30K, but that did little to help Finland's Remy Lindholm, who needed a heat pack at the end of the race to thaw out a particularly sensitive body part. Lindholm spent just under an hour and 16 minutes traversing the course in howling freezing winds, leading to his penis becoming frozen for the second time in a cross-country skiing race following a similar incident in Ruka, Finland last year. Quote, you can guess which body part was a little bit frozen when I finished the men's Olympic 50K race. It was one of the worst competitions I've been in. It was just about battling through, he told Finnish media. With organizers worried about frostbite during Saturday's race, it was delayed by an hour and shortened by 20K. The thin suits and underlayers worn by racers, as well as plasters to cover their face and ears, offered little protection. Lindholm explained that he used a heat pack to try to thaw out his appendage once the race was over. When the body parts started to warm up after the finish, the pain was unbearable, he added. So I guess in a weird way, it was like easier to deal with when it was frozen because I guess he didn't feel it, right? He was numb. Um, the real pain came when it started melting, which is a positive because you want to return it to a normal heat range. I don't know, if, if does he have a particularly vulnerable penis? Because it says it had happened before. And I think they mean just to him, not others. So maybe he can talk to other skiers about like how they keep their penises, their appendages warm, or if not warm, non-frozen, thawed. I mean, if I were him, I definitely would make this issue a top priority. Yeah, he should campaign on it. I mean, yeah, he no, should just... be creating some new sportswear that 
So it keeps your penis warm. Absolutely. I would devote, if, if I had experienced this issue, not once, but twice, Yeah, that's I would thing. devote my life to resolving it. I mean, not to blame the victim, but maybe I'm going to blame worn... the victim. All right. Yeah. You know what? It happens once. Okay. Then it's on you. Mm -hmm. What were you wearing? You yeah. shouldn't have worn those pants <laughs> because obviously they don't work well, but why not just like, what, what would you do in that situation? Like, what about a bunch of tinfoil or like those things you put in your pot, hand warmers, but maybe you don't want to put that there. Or you don't know what kind of birth defect. I would retire. Have. I would just retire. You would just retire. Yeah. I would really? Retire. You'd give it all up? I would give it all up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That would, that would sufficiently scare me into retirement for yeah. sure. I would actually become probably some kind of scientist and invent some great fabric, penis warming fabric. <laughs> PWF. Well, listen, I mean, that would be a wonderful invention. It would be, right? I'd make a there lot would of be, money. There would be people with penises participating in winter sports all around the world who would be forever grateful. There are probably so many penis, people with penises who don't even partake in that out of fear. Out of fear, yes. Yeah, frostbite yeah. fear. Yes. That's my new American uh, new contract for America. Mm. It's my new contract for the world, actually. We are the world. Well, you, you have a lot. I mean, look, that's a bipartisan issue for sure. That, that crosses partisan lines. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get uh, your far left cold penises and your far right cold penises and everyone's going to align behind warmth. Yeah. yeah, We can all get behind opposing frostbitten penises. So that's an isn't that terrible. But isn't that terrible that breeds a real opportunity for um, innovation? And isn't that terrific? So excited to be bringing on to the show Branko Marcetic. He's a writer at Jacobin, the co-host of the One of 200 podcast and the author of Yesterday's Man, the case against Joe Biden. And you can follow him at B Marchatich, which is get ready. B M A R C H E T I C H. Welcome, Branco. So excited to have you on. Well, I'm very excited to be here. Wanted to just uh, start off by quoting a piece that you wrote. It's a great, great opening, and it's at Jacobin, and you write, It's January, a defiant crowd of protesters, a jumble of bodies, where far-right extremists rub shoulders with everyday people, wants the head of the elected president. They chant anti-government slogans, occupy government buildings, and carry arms. Some of them makeshift melee weapons, some of them hunting rifles and Kalashnikovs. By the time it's all said and done, the demonstrations will lead to the death and hospitalization of both protesters and police. It's not the Capitol riot in Washington that so horrified Americans and foreign observers in 2021. This was the Ukrainian Maidan revolution, or Euromaidan, which right around this time eight years ago actually succeeded in toppling the country's elected government, sending then-president Viktor Yanukovych fleeing for his life to neighboring Russia. And that's from your piece at Jacobin called A U.S.-backed, far-right-led revolution in Ukraine helped bring us to the brink of war. Uh, and then your like subtitle is, in 2014, Ukraine, great power, gamemanship, righteous anger at a corrupt status quo, and opportunistic far-right extremists toppled the government in the Maidan revolution. Today's crisis in Ukraine can't be understood without understanding Maidan. So why is it that it can't be understood without understanding that? And what is there to understand? 
Boy, those are those are big questions. Both. I, uh, I mean, you know, I, obviously the the current uh, crisis over Ukraine, its its roots are, are way deeper and, and longer, way before uh, uh, Maidan. But uh, that was sort of the the if we if we're going to trace this current crisis to one single event in, in recent history, I think Maidan, the, the Maidan Revolution, would be it because that was what uh, ousted the this. Not, not quite pro-Russian, but at least uh, Russian-friendly uh, president curious. at the time. Yeah, and really uh, sent Ukrainian politics into this more uh, nationalistic direction uh, and a more pro-Western direction, more aligned with the West and, and towards NATO. Um, and I think that is basically what what uh, this uh, entire thing is about, that, that, that this, this kind of game of brinkmanship that Putin is playing uh, with the West right now. Um, what is there to understand about it? Uh, so, so, so much. Uh, I think one of the things I want to do with that piece was to uh, challenge or to, to put a different, uh, uh, more comprehensive, comprehensive perspective on uh, the protests and, and the revolution in, in the West, in the US, the revolution tends to get cast as this um, pretty unambiguously liberal and, and, and good thing. And certainly there were uh, many you know, worthy uh, demands uh, that, were, that were in the protests. Uh, many of the people, most of the people that, that were taking part in it were you know, uh, in favor of, of anti-corruption and, and liberal values and, and, and you know, more political freedoms, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, there were many different elements going on there. And one of the uh, contingents of that revolution happened to be the far right. Um, and, and the reason why I bring up January 6th is because I think it's an interesting uh, way to sort of get people to understand why, you know, people who have a less uh, positive view of the Maidan revolution uh, feel that way. You know, everyone in the U.S. quite understandably was, was sort of rocked by uh, the images they saw on January 6th, the, the, you know, the, the flying of Confederate flags and all sorts of far-right symbols, uh, along with sort of a, a, a hodgepodge of kind of politically confused uh, uh, protesters and rioters. Um, and people kind of found that a very shocking scene and, and quite, quite, you know, rightly so. Um, but what happened in Ukraine in 2014 was, was very much like that, but kind of, uh, kind of in steroids. Um, you know, there was far more violence. There was, there was actual killing of police and, and, and attacking of police with, with guns and, and other pretty serious weapons by the protesters, which didn't really happen on, on January 6th. Um, you know, most the, the people who died were either the protesters themselves or they died from, from kind of um, uh, not natural causes, but, you know, strokes and that kind of thing afterwards. Um, so it's a much more extreme version of what happened on January 6th. And I think if, if people start to understand that uh, the, the Ukrainian revolution and those terms, they start to maybe understand why it is that, uh, you know, um, uh, the politics in Ukraine and the tensions between Ukraine and Russia have really kind of uh, spiraled uh, ever since then. And you point out in your piece that Washington, including many of the people who are currently in the Biden administration, right up to the president himself, played a critical role in the Maidan coup. Talk to us about that. Uh, people like Victoria Nuland and Joe Biden himself, what they did to basically undermine attempts to resolve the Maidan crisis and force Yanukovych into, into fleeing. 
Yeah, so first thing to, to remember is that uh, the United States uh, was was involved, first of all, the United States and the West, by uh, supporting kind of pro-democracy groups, organizations, initiatives in Ukraine. That's That had been happening for, for, for years. You know, it was happening in 2004. It was... It was uh, played a role in the and uh, the, the the color revolution that happened there. That that um, in that case, it actually stopped Yanukovych from coming to power because he had won uh, the elections uh, in what were pretty widely considered fraudulent. Um, and and you know, I quote the Center for American Progress, the kind of preeminent liberal uh, and democratic party institution. Uh, and it says, you know, that they said at the time, does the US meddle in Ukrainian politics? Yes, of course it does. That, you know, we, we were called something different. We were called democracy promotion or, you know, a bunch of other euphemisms. But of course, the United States meddles and they're, uh, and they're trying to get the political outcome they want, which in that case was uh, Ukrainian politics after 2004 was not made any less corrupt and authoritarian as, as Ukrainians wanted. But it did mean that there was a more um, pro-Western tilt in Ukrainian politics. Uh, and the same sort of thing happens in 2013, where uh, the United States, through organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy, which, you know, one, one of its uh, uh, people basically described it as this is what the CIA does, but we do it uh, out in the open. It's, it's a, not a verbatim quote. It's a paraphrase. But, but that's what they said. And the idea was that you would funnel money into, you know, whether it's pro-democracy groups or towards reactionary organizations like the, uh, the Contras in Nicaragua. Uh, whatever uh, particular factions in the country were going to be um, most convenient for achieving, uh, you know, uh, Washington's interests, uh, perceived interests. Um, and in, in that case, in, in 2013 and 2014, what the uh, United States um, was funding was, was pro-democracy groups that were run by sort of some of the, the neoliberal politicians uh, in Ukraine. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to overstate things. I don't want to say that the US was the only reason that these revolutions happened or, or that these protests happened. That, that would be kind of, that would be going a little far. But it is true that the United States did support um, some of these groups that were instrumental in getting people onto the streets. Uh, and, and they did it, you know, not because necessarily they cared that much about corruption or, you know, uh, authoritarianism in Ukraine, but because they had particular geopolitical interests that they wanted to, to, to uh, make real. And so that's basically what, um, uh, what ended up happening at the beginning. Once the revolution starts to really heat up because Yanukovych starts uh, gunning people down and sort of uh, uh, cracking down on the protests to try and end them, always a, a bad idea. Uh, of course, what that does is just sort of inflames anti-government feeling more and more protesters come to the street. And at that point, um, the U.S. Right, one context, thing, one thing yeah. there was there was, though, also the Maidan massacre where Yanukovych was accused of firing on the Maidan protesters, but research by a political scientist at the University of Ottawa, I think personally, pretty convincingly shows that actually that was perpetrated by the opposition side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even Kachanovsky, I believe, uh, did, a, did a study of some of the evidence that came out uh, afterwards. And, and there's eyewitnesses who say that when they heard the shooting, the shooting definitely came from the direction of, say, uh, uh, there was a, a hotel that was occupied by pro-government, uh, sorry, anti-government forces at the time, and other buildings uh, there in the square uh, similarly occupied. 
Um, and also, if you look at some of the, the, the wounds and some of the forensic evidence, you know, the, the ammunition that was used uh, on both protesters and police, it was identical, and that sort of lends weight to it. There's other evidence, too. You know, there was a, a, um, uh, a figure, actually, who was imprisoned in Russia. So she, you know, by no means a, a pro-Putin person. She said that, that similarly, she saw a uh, Ukrainian politician leading people to a, um, a protester-occupied place, and, and you know, the, these people were carrying rifles. So there's definitely evidence uh, to, to suggest that, you know, the far right or certain nationalist elements were, were sort of um, using this or even trying to um, stoke uh, conflict and, and to, to, to raise the tensions. But once, once you have all these protesters coming out and, you know, people are being very fiery, the U.S. kind of more explicitly comes out in support. And so, yeah, you have Victoria Nuland giving out sandwiches uh, to the uh, the protesters, um, you also have John McCain. Who Victoria Newland is for people? Yes, yeah, uh, she was a, a a diplomat, a State Department official who uh, was was uh, ended up taking a very instrumental role, particularly after the. Uh, after after Yanukovych was toppled, um, you know there, there was a recording that came out that was very embarrassing yeah, for the United States, yeah. uh, where uh, and and it was probably released by Russia. You know they they managed to to surveil her and then they they put this out. And of course all the outrage was about Russia <laughs> putting out this intelligence, right. and not so much about what was said on the tape. And well, Michael, what, we have the clip actually. We have oh, a clip yeah. of the tape. Well, let's yeah. Uh, yeah, let's go let's to that. To U.S. is making all these allegations against Russia, including a plotting a coup inside Ukraine choosing a new government. Just imagine if a tape would come out of Russian officials speaking about the Ukrainian government in the way that Victoria Nuland does here. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week. You know, I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yats and Yuk, It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. Okay. And they also go on to say that they're going to get the blessing of Joe Biden, get to give it the attaboy in their in their words. And Victoria Nuland also says, "Fuck the EU," because they're trying to exclude them from this process. Because what they're trying to do is basically undermine any kind of compromise which was reached that could keep Yanukovych in power. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, instead of everyone adhering to a resolution that was reached, brokered by the EU which Newland said basically to fuck off, uh, there was more violence, Yanukovych fled, and that basically led to a new government. And the prime minister of that new government was exactly who Victoria Newland had selected. And she said, Yats is the guy, Yatsniuk. And that reference to this guy, Tunnerbrook, I think he's a far right figure, right? And I think she was basically saying that he can't come into the government because he's too far right extremist. It wouldn't look very good for, every, for the new coup government that she was plotting to help install. Yeah, but but of course, members of the far right did end up taking certain plum roles in the interim government and and in governments uh, after that, even though they, they weren't maybe quite as extensive as as that initial uh, first uh, post Maidan government. So you know, it, it's it's a matter of kind of perhaps having a, a figurehead or at least someone who is going to be publicly facing who who doesn't have some of these red flags that looks bad. But you know, these elements are going to get in anyway. Um, and and it's worth not, noting not that red flags, not in the Russian sense of communist sense of red <laughs> flags, different kinds of red flags. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's an, that's an important distinction, I think. Uh, it's worth noting as well that that uh, while the protests are happening. John McCain, the late great John McCain, who uh, never never met a war he, he didn't want to stoke or send people to die in, uh, went to, to Maidan. He, he said that 
gave his support to the protesters, as did uh, Chris Murphy, Connecticut uh, Senator Chris Murphy, who's a Democrat. Um, he went to, and they, they both met with one of the far-right uh, leaders in Ukraine and, and basically stood with them as they pronounced uh, to the crowd that they that they backed him. So yeah, I, I think maybe that doesn't sound that extreme, but I want people to remember, think back in 2016, 2017, when uh, the mere idea of Russia uh, through Facebook memes and bots right. and other things of that nature, were supporting Black Lives Matter protests or voicing support for, say, anti-war activists. Things that I think uh, everyone here and probably most people watching would agree are, are good things, things that are worth supporting. However, that was widely interpreted by not just US officials, but a lot of journalists and a lot of Americans as sort of an inappropriate wading into another country's politics okay sure maybe it was pearl harbor, it was, it was harbor yeah, by pearl harbor. sorry yeah you know, the <laughs> said it was a kid it was the same thing yeah. as pearl harbor yeah that's right it was it was the worst attack on, on, on america and in, in, in its and in its it modern history Jesus, yeah, Jesus I, I masturbation memes were very powerful I <laughs> that's, right, that's right that's right well don't forget that they beat it together there was also the buff, Bernie, the buff Bernie, the buff Bernie. That is true. You know, yeah, never forget. An um, attempt to to defeat uh, America through through uh, stoking horniness. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the great yeah. uh, strategies. But um, you know, people at the time, right? They they hyperventilated about this, and and I think that was way over the top. But there was a a core kind of. Uh, objection there which wasn't completely unreasonable which is the idea that hey the, you know whatever you think about this whatever problems we're having these are our problems uh that this is within our national territory you don't have the right to come in here and, and and meddle with that okay well if you if you believe in that principle and don't just sort of apply it when it, it, it happens to align with something that, that 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 you know with your government or something that you believe in then you have to look at it uh, from the point of view of, you know, Ukrainians as well, where where uh, the, the U.S. government was kind of putting its thumb on the scale, sort of voicing support for um, a, a protest movement that was not majority supported in Ukraine. Ukraine, as we're seeing now, is, is deeply polarized because of geographical and historical reasons. And so not everyone was was backing the, the Maidan revolution, which along with all the good things about anti-corruption and, and more democracy and, and, and the like, it was also about moving uh, Ukrainian uh, policy, foreign policy more towards the West and away from Russia, with pe which people in the East didn't necessarily agree with. Uh, so that's a very long answer, which I, I hope has maybe <laughs> answered some of your, your yeah. uh, question. It was very helpful. And, and Maidan, just so people know, it just means square, right? And that's where the protests were taking place. So that's why it, it turned into that, um, to that. That's why it's called that. But just one thing. So you said that um, Yanukovych, Yanukovych, he shot at people. But I know that you also cited the evidence that Aaron just brought up from the Ottawa professor, because I know you mentioned that in one of the articles. So is the idea that like, there were other times when the government shot at people, but not all the times? Or is it just that we don't even know if they ever shot at people? I mean, I think there is there's eyewitness testimony and, and stuff that that suggests that Ukrainian forces were firing on on protesters. Um, so it's not as if you know the, the far right elements were the only ones who are potentially uh, in this. But then also, you know, as for the, the detail of that, I mean, I'm not sure who fired on who. Whether whether the Ukrainian forces firing on some of the more violent protests because you have to remember that the protesters were carrying not just makeshift melee weapons but but rifles right um and and of course there were there were far-right elements in those 
protests that were always kind of the ones that were most itching for uh, some sort of violent confrontation. So were they firing on them? Does that, doesn't necessarily make it more justifiable, but but that is, I think, a, a question to ask. Um, I, the whole thing is so chaotic um, that it's very difficult to, to um, you know, say, but, but I think it is important that uh, if there is evidence that far-right uh, individuals were, were kind of playing a role in, in, um, in, in heightening the violence that was happening and sort of uh, escalating things. And that's kind of a, a, a significant detail if we are going to talk about yeah. this as a sort of revolution and, and you know, who to blame and everything. And it's hard when we're not there, right? But I will just say that there is a, a pretty established pattern where wherever the U.S. gets involved, the U.S. has a line at the time that is either undermined by the available evidence at the time, or like 50 years later, we get the declassified documents, and we find out that the U.S. was a lot more involved and a lot more nefarious than than they admitted to at the time. For example, in Iran in the early 50s when they launched a coup, it took until this century where we got some key documents showing that they helped rile up these protests to overthrow a uh, the the, the Iranian government at the time because that government wanted to had the crazy idea of controlling its own oil resources and not handing them over to American and British oil companies. And so I just think we have to leave open the possibility that one day we'll find out a lot more about US involvement than is already even clear now. Well, I think that's a really key point because yeah, you're right. We don't know what we don't know. Um, and, and I think that's a, a thing worth keeping in mind about this current uh, uh, you know, stush of Ukraine as well, because perhaps it's true that the U.S. had intelligence, that, that Russia was going to do all sorts of nefarious things. Uh, we haven't seen evidence for that, um, but it could be true. It could also be true that, that you know, the U.S. was putting out its, its messaging, its, its communication strategy in order to embarrass Russia or to make it uh, climb down um, from whatever it was doing. Um, and it could be that that series of, of decisions ended up kind of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, causing a chain of events that, that led to the very thing that, that people were, were warning about. It's hard to know. And we may find out um, years from now, decades from now, I hope we do, what exactly was happening, what was the, the, going on in the minds of, of the leadership, not just in the US, but in Russia. Um, but we don't know that. We don't know anything about that now. And so, you know, it, it does always... Um, uh, kind of frustrate me a little bit when people make a lot of confident pronouncements of, you know, this is this is what's going on in, in say, Putin's mind or something. Um, you know, I think we, we can maybe take some pretty broad um, and I think educated guesses about what exactly he's doing. I think, you know, uh, I'm happy to go into that. But, uh, you know, this idea that, well, you know, Putin did this speech and here's a line from the speech and therefore... Uh, that proves that this is all about this one thing. I think that's a little um, reductive. On that point, like the, the the prevailing narrative in the U.S. right now, when it comes to Putin's decision to recognize these breakaway republics in the Donbas, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, is that this is just the first stop in Putin's bid to take all of Ukraine or take a lot more of Ukraine. What do you make of that? And what do you make of his decision to offer this recognition? Uh, well, okay, so so one, who knows where this is going to go? I feel like just on a purely strategic level, it seems a little uh, crazy for him to to go all the way into Ukraine. I mean, that would be a huge headache for him. We, we know that the U.S. Uh, has been training an anti-Russian insurgency, uh, or at least an anti-Russian insurgency to be uh, in, in Ukraine should a Russian invasion come. 
He's no doubt aware of that. Uh, it seems like a full-on invasion of Ukraine would be, would be you know, uh, more trouble than it's worth. But, you know, who, who's to say? Who's to say what's going on there? And who's to say that things can't escalate to a point that that happens? In terms of his recognition of, of uh, uh, these, uh, these regions, I think there's a few different ways that you can look at it. Um, I think, you know, if you were, say, a US policymaker, you would say, aha, or you see, this is what we were saying. Of course, he, this is just the start of a kind of Hitlerian expansion of Russia. This is what he's always wanted to do to sort of reconstitute re, uh, the, the former Soviet Union. And, and that's what's happening here. This is just the first stage. Uh, another way to look at it is that you know, what has happened throughout these months is that Putin was essentially trying to get the U.S. towards uh, to the negotiating table. You know, he, he didn't actually invade. Um, and, and even now, you, you know, whether you want to call this invasion or not, he didn't he didn't send any troops in uh, for a good long while. He sort of just kind of built up these troops as a sort of threatening measure. Um, and he put forward these demands, pretty maximalist demands. And the U.S. And, and the West more generally just sort of said, no, we're not we're not doing any of that. Um, we're not going to make any sort of limits on, on, on NATO's expansion to Ukraine, even though, by the way, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And we're not going to fight over Ukraine if, if you do anything. But but when we're refusing to, to, to budge at all on this. And so one way you could look at this, this most recent thing is because just last week, Putin actually rejected uh, the Russian parliament's uh, uh, call for him to recognize them. He said, you know, that would be against the Minsk agreements. We have to you know, keep going. Suggest to me that he's maybe changed his mind about where he thinks the US uh, and the West more generally is, is going to uh, go on this, whether they're actually going to seriously negotiate. And so this could be a way for him to kind of uh, try and, and escalate the situation to get the, the United States to the negotiating table. I mean, I think it's backfired if that was the case, because the US is now saying, no, we're, not, we're definitely not meeting with them now. But that's one interpretation. I'm guessing that Putin is responding here to the announcement from Kiev, where they all of a sudden announced after engaging in talks about implementing Minsk, which are the only accords on record to resolve this conflict in the Donbass between Kiev and the separatist rebels. Uh, Kiev announced that they're no longer going to negotiate with the rebels, the, the people who control these two breakaway regions. That was just last week. And then you had Putin's announcement. So that it's my sense that he's at least that decision to no longer negotiate with the rebels in the Donbass is what prompted Putin to basically conclude that the U.S. and, and Kiev are not interested in ever actually agreeing to Minsk. And so he might as well make this aggressive move to force them into a defensive posture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that makes sense. I think one of the things that that often gets left out here is uh, Ukraine's role in all this, the Ukrainian government's role, because, uh, you know, obviously that you can point to violations of Minsk by, by Russia, but also Ukraine has been pretty consistently um, loath to, to, to uh, uh fulfill the Minsk Accords because of, partly because of the, the, the threat from the far right, which has been very willing in, in the years since the Maidan Revolution to engage in, in street violence, um, you know, to even make an attack on parliament um, in response to what it kind of calls a, a surrender that, you know, believes that any, any if the Minsk Accords are, are actually uh, followed through on that, that would be a, um, a surrender to Russia. So I think that's really important. And, you know, one way, another way you could look at this, another interpretation uh, is that, that Putin is, um, you know, planning to either annex 
the, the Eastern Ukraine or to, to carve out a separate state, um, uh, basically that, that ser- ends up serving as a kind of buffer um, between him and Ukraine that he's kind of acknowledged as now it's lost to the West. I'm not going to be able to get this back in my sphere of influence. I think, I think all of those are possible. You know, I think we have to remember that, that it, it, likely Putin himself does not have a plan. Um, maybe he has some sort of broad strategic uh, goals that he would like to fulfill. I do think that he really wants to have some sort of security arrangement where basically he's sure that, that Ukraine and Georgia aren't going to, to, to end up in NATO and, you know, that they create that, that and also an arrangement that acknowledges Russia's, I guess, place in Europe as power in Europe. I think that may be his overarching goal, um, but uh, he's also someone who's reacting to events and he's sort of uh, improvising. And so it may be that he himself is not co- completely sure about where exactly this is going, and, and which is itself kind of scary. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. It was great. I didn't know that Christian Bale knew so much about Ukraine. Oh, he does kind of look like Christian Bale right now with the long hair. Yeah. I mean, I'm, a, I'm I, I, for me, like, you know, as we're interviewing, I'm like, am I talking to Christian Bale? And I didn't want to say that to his face because you never know when you tell someone that they look like a celebrity, if they're going to appreciate that or not. It's kind of right. awkward sometimes. So, I, you know, I was too cowardly to do it in person, yeah. but behind his back, now. I'm going to declare yeah. that to me, it's uncanny. The resemblance between Bronco and Christian Bale. Anyway. That was a great interview. I learned a lot from Bronco as I always do. And again, as you said, Kate, he's so prolific with his articles. And to yeah. understand the crisis in Ukraine, I recommend everything he's written, especially the one we started out with about yeah. the roots of this whole conflict going back to the coup in 2014. It's He gives the best summary that I've read on the events that happened there, which are just so critical to understanding what has taken place since because they capture how the U.S., has treated Ukraine as a proxy and it's had very disastrous consequences and we're living through them now. Yes, indeed. Well, thanks everyone. Thank you so much for watching useful idiots, for listening to useful idiots, for rating, reviewing us wherever you listen to your podcasts so that we can beat the Lincoln project and we can beat pod save America. Make sure that you subscribe to us on YouTube, subscribe to us on um, Substack. That's youtube.com slash useful idiots and that's uh, usefulidiots.substack.com. Also join us on Mondays for our Monday morning uh, live streams where we react to the Sunday morning news shows that we watch so that you don't have to. And then afterwards on Colin, Colin, the app, which is free and now available, not just on iPhones, but also Androids. Androids. So it's Monday morning at 10 a.m. on youtube.com slash useful idiots and then Colin at 11 a.m. And to get a bonus segment from this interview with Bronco, oh, yeah. go to usefulidiots.substack.com where we talk about the latest in the Jeffrey Epstein saga. Yeah, right. And also extended conversation about Ukraine and also Vosh. Vosh, Vosh, I don't even know how to say it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't uh, matter. That was a great episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.